All right, today uh, we come to what many consider to be one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. Our chapter today is Romans chapter 8. And this chapter in many ways is the culmination of all that has been said up to this point in Romans. There is, we have a lot to say here today, but uh, we no way are we going to exhaust every noteworthy truth in this great chapter. But let's, let's consider some of the highlights here. Um, think first about uh, no condemnation. <laughs> Paul does not ease into this chapter. With the very first verse, he makes the emphatic and bold assertion, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those are some of the most beautiful words in the Bible. This is the irreversible conclusion drawn from the argument that has been building from the beginning of the letter. Notice the word therefore in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation. Paul is drawing the conclusion from all that has been said thus far. He began the letter by declaring, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And this is the simplest way of describing the good news of the gospel that he's been building. There's therefore now no condemnation. If there's anything more breathtaking than the news that when we stand before a blindingly holy God, there will be absolutely no condemnation upon us. Is there anything more breathtaking than that? We who have lived in constant rebellion against his perfect and holy will and law are now in a position owing to his mercy and his grace where his wrath and anger against us has been completely removed. In its place, only favor. Why? Paul says it is because we are in Christ Jesus in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I love how one old writer uh, put it when he said that apart, that, 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 that from God's perspective, believers are, quote, they are uh, never dealt with except as they are in him. We are never dealt with except as uh, God seeing us in Christ Jesus. In other words, when we repent of our sins and put our faith in Christ, as Colossians 3 says, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And now God the Father deals with us and treats us as if we had lived the life that Jesus lived for us. That's what it means to be in Christ. God no longer looks at us as we are. He now looks at us um, He looks at Jesus and sees us in and through him. Every good he earned becomes ours, and every punishment we earned became his. It is really the most remarkable truth ever uttered. If we don't believe that, we neither know the holiness of God nor the offensiveness of our sin. That's a beautiful way to begin the chapter. But secondly, let's explore what Paul says in verse 13. There Paul says, For if you live according to the flesh you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Let's think about that, killing sin by the Spirit, as he puts it. When Paul mentions the deeds of the body, he says, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. When, he, when That phrase, the deeds of the body, he's talking about sin. And that's also what he means uh, when he talks about living according to the flesh. To be in the flesh is to be an unbeliever. I, I, it, it irks me when, uh, when professing believers uh, are just in a foul mood or in a bad mood and they say, I'm in the flesh today. No, if you're in the flesh, you're not a believer at all. That's what the Bible means 
by being in the flesh. So to be in the flesh as an unbeliever versus being in Christ uh, as a believer. So to, to live according to the flesh is a supposed believer living like an unbeliever. Paul says that if a believer lives according to the flesh, they will die because that those actions reveal a deeper reality of the heart. A believer will live like a believer. An unbeliever will live like an unbeliever, even if he professes to the contrary. See Titus 1.16. Now, to say a believer will live like a believer, it is not saying that we will never sin. But when he sins or she sins, he or she will be aware of their sin and respond to their sin like a, like a believer would respond to sin. How is that? Paul puts it another way. He says, by the, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, or if by the Spirit you kill sin, that's, that's, how, that's how a believer responds to sin. They seek to kill it. And Paul says a believer ought to go about killing sin in their life. Um, we, we do it by the Spirit. What does that mean? That's what I want to think about. What, how do we fight sin in our lives by the Spirit, as he says. What does Paul mean by that phrase? Here's my take on it. It seems like in verse 5, he might shed some light on this. There Paul says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. In that verse, we see another reference to living according to the flesh, as in, just like in verse 13. Um and uh, it also appears that living according to the Spirit, in verse 5, is synonymous with living by the Spirit, in verse 13. So if we're right about that, how else can verse 5 help us? Well, it seems that in verse 5, Paul views those who live according to the flesh or according to the Spirit as involving where they set their minds. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, verse 5. Conversely, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, if that's the case, the next question is, what does it mean to set your mind on the things of the Spirit? What are the things of the Spirit so that you can set your mind on it? There's only one other place in the entire New Testament that Paul uses the phrase, the things of the Spirit. And that is in 1 Corinthians 2.14. There, Paul says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So there it is. They do not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Now let's see if that context in 1 Corinthians 2 helps us to understand what exactly the things of the Spirit are that the natural person does not accept. Uh, in verse 10, Paul talks about things that God has revealed to us through the Spirit. That seems to be awfully close to what we're talking about. Okay, How did God reveal to us things through the Spirit? Verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 2 seems to give the answer when it says, And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Hmm. Words taught by the Spirit. So according to 1 Corinthians 2, the things of the Spirit of God, verse 14, are words taught by the Spirit, verse 13. And that gets us very close. What are words taught by the Spirit? The answer, Scripture, the Bible. Peter says that the Scriptures were written down when, 2 Peter 1.21, men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So where has this lengthy investigation gotten us? 
I believe it's a long way around the block, but nevertheless, biblically certain way of interpreting Romans 8, 13. When Paul says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, he means do it by the things of the Spirit, which are what? The Scriptures. We kill sin by the Spirit when we use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Ephesians 6, 17. When we read and study the Scriptures regularly, when we come to know the mind and will of God, those are the tools that the Holy Spirit uses to help us recognize and kill sin in our lives. We are helpless against sin in our lives when we refuse to read the Scriptures. The psalmist said in Psalm 119.11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. He also said in Psalm 119 verse 9, How can a young man keep his way pure? How? By guarding it according to your word. Believers will live like believers, and believers believe the word of God. The word of God is the things of the Spirit by which we kill sin and live increasingly holy and obedient lives. Paul says if you do this, you are living according to the Spirit, Romans 8, 5, bearing the fruit of one who is a genuine believer. And verse 13 says, you will live. Well, let's think finally about the truth that all things work together for good. Aside from John 3.16, perhaps one of the most well-known verses in the Bible is Romans 8.28. Christians quote it all the time, and I believe they do it scarcely knowing the profound truth that they are uttering. There is so much we could say about Romans 8.28, but I, I just want to point out one slice of what it is saying. Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called and co called according to his purpose. Now, he doesn't say that all things are good, but definitely all things bad or good work together for good. The question it seems Paul wants us to ask at this point is this. How can we know that for sure? How can we know for sure that everything in a believer's life, even the worst things, will work out for our good? That seems like the question Paul wants us to ask because he seems to begin answering that very question in verse 29. That verse begins with the word for. That means he's about to give the reason for what he just said in verse 28. And what is that reason? What is the reason, he says, you can be sure that all things work together for good? Well, the answer is in verse 29 and 30, Paul basically says the reason we can be so sure that everything, even the worst things in our lives, will work together for good is because God is the one who set his love on us freely to save us, and he has already promised that he will save us to the very end. In verse 29, Paul teaches that our salvation didn't even begin with our decision to trust Christ, but with God's. He says there that God foreknew us and predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son, verse 29. God is the one who desired to save us. And so Paul then describes how that actually came about in real time in our lives. He goes on to say in verse 30 that those whom he predestined, he also called. That is referring to an awakening call on our hearts upon hearing the gospel message. That is not the call of the preacher preaching the gospel, saying, come to Jesus. This is the call that the Holy Spirit does when the preacher says that. Or the, your friends, whoever, whoever, if you even if you're just reading the scriptures for yourself, this this call is the call of the Holy Spirit upon your heart to respond to the gospel message uh, that you hear or read. What happens then when we respond in in repentance and faith? Paul says in verse thirty, "Those whom he called, he also justified; 
We know from previous chapters what that means. We believe, when we believe we put our faith in Christ, we are justified, Romans 5, 1. And there is therefore now no condemnation, Romans 8, 1. But is that all? Notice finally how verse 30 ends. Paul makes the astonishing claim that all those whom he justified, he also glorified. What? Glorified? How is that? Notice Paul wrote that word in the past tense, glorified, as if it's already happened. But we know that we're not glorified yet. That won't happen until we see Jesus face to face when Jesus returns. So how come Paul writes it as if it's already happened, just like he did with predestined and called and justified things that really did happen already in our lives. Because in the mind of God, when he set his love on you to save you, he intended to save you completely to the end, uh, unfailingly. In the mind of God, your final salvation is so certain, it is as if you are already glorified in his presence. That will experientially come about in time, but in the mind of God and in the purpose of God, it has already happened because it is so certain to happen. And that is why Paul can promise that everything, everything, even the worst of things in our lives, will most definitely work together for our good. That is just one piece of the beauty of Romans 8.28. And if you listen to this podcast all the way to the end, uh, thanks for hanging in there. I know it was longer than usual, but this is one heck of a chapter. And those are some thoughts uh, from Romans chapter 8.